Hello everyone and welcome to Navara Live. I'm your host Dahlia Gabriel and joining me today is Ash Sarka. Ash, how are you doing? I'm feeling fine. It's ladies night and the feeling's goddamn right. Coming up tonight, the story around Andrew Malkinson, the man wrongly convicted for 20 years. The Home Office have come up with a new way to punish asylum seekers and a new development in the Captain Tom Moore family farce. Stay tuned for all of that. Right, our first story. Inflation for the year up to July has fallen 6.8%. That's a drop of 1.1% on last month's figure of 79 It's a substantial drop, but not quite as much of a fall as some economists expected. This FT graph shows the fall in top-line inflation, which is the dark blue line, but it also illustrates that drop masks little change in underlying price rises. The light blue line is core inflation. That's the rate at which the price of goods excluding food and energy are rising. That remains unchanged at 6.9%. And at the same time, the price of services, the red line, is increasing at a faster rate than last month. The important point is that core inflation isn't really budging. But that's not the case everywhere. Unlike in the UK, core inflation has fallen in Germany, Italy, Canada, France and Japan. And it's never even reached the levels in those countries that we've seen in Britain. The main cause of the drop in overall inflation was falling energy prices, a factor that's independent of domestic policy. But the government is still keen to claim cooling inflation as a win. On Radio 4's Today programme, Treasury Minister John Glenn was asked why. Whilst this is great progress today, uh, inflation is too high. And that's why the Prime Minister is very clear at the very start of the year, this was his top top priority. It's the government's top priority to get it down, to halve it this year. We're on track uh, to do that. And though there's no complacency at all from the Treasury or across government as a whole, um, we will focus on this as, as the top priority because it has such implications for the rest of the economy. It's interesting you talk about it being a priority. The Prime Minister sometimes refers to his plan, mm. but inflation hasn't come down as a result of government action. It's come down because world oil prices have come down. It's come down because global food prices are rising less fast. Can you name one aspect of the plan? that has contributed to inflation coming down today? Well, I certainly think if if I was uh, deciding as Chief Secretary with the Chancellor and the Prime Minister to borrow uh, a lot more money or to spend a lot more money, it would have an effect But that's uh, on things inflation. you haven't done. But, Can you but, identify but, a single well, thing that you I, as government well, have done I, I, that have contributed to today's fall in well, inflation? Nick, I can tell you, uh, to hold to the budgets that we set out at the spending review in an inflationary environment when there are massive calls to spend money all the time is an active choice. And uh, having a grip on public spending and despite massive pressures to increase spending, which we have week in, week out. And indeed, um, uh, His Majesty's loyal opposition are going to spend a lot more, are going to borrow a lot more, although they don't like to face up to that. Those are choices that I have made and the government has made to ensure that we keep this inflation target on track. It's a choice, but forgive me pushing on this, but it's nothing to do with the rate of inflation, is it, at the moment? Inflation has not fallen this month because of anything you can identify that Rishi Sunak or you at the Treasury, along with the Chancellor, have done, has it? Well, I think active management of public finances is a core function of uh, the Treasury under this Prime Minister. Okay, let's turn to the light at the end of the tunnel. That's a bit like saying, please thank me for saving your house after I chose not to set it on fire. Not exactly credit worthy. So what does all this economic news mean for households? One important figure is food price inflation. It's dropped this month, but prices continue to rise alarmingly, with the rate now at 12.7%. So things remain pretty tough for ordinary people. That's a point Labour's Angela Rayner was keen to press on the Today programme. It's a relief for a lot of people, but it, of course, still means that there is a cost of living and prices are still going up, but at a slower rate. You know, we've seen families see their bills going up significantly over £300 per month, and it has been really difficult for people over the last couple of years. And we've had 13 years of economic chaos by the Conservatives. So whilst, you know, it will be a relief, I wouldn't think it would be welcome. It would be more of a relief for people that there is this uh, idea that things are 
uh, starting to gradually improve. But however, people have been put through hell and back and are still going to be facing this cost of living crisis for some time to come. Things are gradually starting to improve, you say. Rishi Sunak says light at the end of the tunnel sounds in a way like you both agree on the description of what's happening with the economy. Well, the frustration for us in Labour is that we didn't have to be here. You know, the Tories crashed the economy. They haven't uh, provided us with an economy that has been growing. We've had a decade of low growth, low pay and high taxes. So it's the Tories that have put us in this situation. And whilst it's a relief that we're not going any higher than, than what we have, you know, many families up and down the country at the moment are incredibly finding things difficult. They can't they can't meet their, their, mon their monthly payments, you know, these are bills, of course, that have gone up, that are bills that you can't choose to pay or not. These are everyday bills. The food's gone up, the energy, the mortgage, the rents. These are bills that people can't get away from. And they're not little bills. They're not like a direct debit for a subscription. It is a significant cost to families that they can't, you know, ignore. Inflation coming down is, of course, good news, but interest rates are still likely to keep going up. When the Bank of England meets next month, a 15th consecutive interest rate rise is likely, with analysts expecting it to go up to 5.5%. That's because ONS data released yesterday shows that wages are growing at a record rate. This graph from The Guardian shows growth in normal regular pay, that's the red line, Nominal regular pay excludes bonuses and doesn't take inflation into account. From April to June, it grew at its fastest rate since records began in 2001 at 7.8. In real terms, though, most wages are still falling as inflation continues to bite. So where are the wage increases coming from? Mostly the private sector. Pay outside the public sector increased by 8.2% from April to June, meaning that salaries rose at a rate almost matching inflation. And those who benefited most work in, no surprises here, financial and business services, where pay rose by 9.4%. So that's right, all those people who were calling for wage restraint for everyone else helped themselves to inflation-busting pay rises. And they were already on a higher salary than all of us anyway. Meanwhile, public sector wages went up by just 6.2%. So is this good news or bad news? Well, it depends on who you ask. This was a headline from the Tory-friendly Express. UK wages rise at record-breaking levels in major new boost for British economy. This headline is from the Murdoch-owned Times. Rishi Sunak upbeat as UK wage growth hits 22-year record. On the higher wages, Rishi Sunak himself said this. It's important that we stick to the plan. The plan is working. I think there is light at the end of the tunnel. If we get through this, people will really start to see the benefit in their bank accounts, in their pockets, as inflation starts to fall. It's giving wheeler dealer energy. Anyway, but it doesn't make sense. We've been told for months and months that asking for a pay rise will tank the economy by sending inflation into the stratosphere. That's the angle other papers took, an example being this headline in the FT. Record UK wage growth fuels inflation concerns. So which one is it? To answer that question, I'm joined now by Joe Mitchell, economics professor at the University of the West of England. So firstly, on this question of wages, Joe, some people might have found those headlines pretty confusing. Are the reports of increased wages good news or bad news? They're good news for those people who got wage rises, which, as you pointed out, are people in the financial services and business services sector. Um, to the extent that other people are getting a pay rise, it's good news, of course, that there's some catch up uh, with uh, wages to price inflation. Um, and where the bad news, I suppose, if you want to call it bad news, comes in is that if if what we see is, you know, some catch up in wages. And as, as we know, it's not sufficient. Real wages are, are flat and have been flat since 2008, near enough. But if we do see a situation in which um, wages start to sort of claw back some of the lost purchasing power to inflation, what you might see is corporates then trying to protect their profit margins and putting their prices up. And then you get the danger of what, you know, the sort of scaremongers call a wage price spiral. And people have been saying for a while, we're already in one. And the evidence is pretty clear that we're not. But I think that's where this, you know, very incoherent set of headlines is coming from. Of course, pay rises are good uh, for workers, but we are in a situation, unfortunately, of global supply shocks. Uh, and that does mean that the, 
the room for maneuver is much tighter. So there's this sort of conflict going on the whole time, you know, capital labor conflict, if you want to call it that. Uh, and if capital kind of responds to the, the wage rises and, and tries to put prices up, then you can get into this unpleasant situation. But it's an unpleasant situation, whichever way you look at it. But I think really wage rises are good news, uh, particularly at the lower end of the distribution, but they're not high enough. We should see further uh, wage rises to catch up some of the lost ground, in my view. Yeah, because it seems like you have these headlines about wages going up, but people aren't really feeling it in their in their pockets or in their quality of life. And I guess what you're saying is that's because we started so far behind and prices are so high that ultimately it's it's much of a muchness. Would you say that that's, that's why people might not be feeling it in their actual day-to-day lives, despite these positive headlines? Yeah, I mean, the headlines are, are really silly in this thing about wages rising at fastest rates in, since records began. Number one, the records seem to begin in 2001 or something because they, they, they changed the definition. So that's a very, very short period. If you go back to the 60s and 70s, there are records of what wages were doing then. They were rising much faster. Second of all, it's nominal wages, meaning cash spending, cash in your pocket, which is buying less and less every month because the prices of things are going up. So real wages are flat or falling for many people. So for most people, they're still finding, okay, maybe they've got a 5% pay rise. Price of food has gone up 15%. They feel poorer because they are poorer. Um, So I think really this, this story about record wage rises is just silly. I mean, there's been a bit of catch up, but as you say, we've had Flat wages in real terms, purchasing power terms, since 2008, you know, the average weekly wage uh, in this country hasn't gone up for 15 years. Um, so people are feeling the pinch, um, undoubtedly. Yeah, people seem to forget that, you know, even Margaret Thatcher, the kind of the sort of North Star, allegedly, of these conservatives, when she first came into power, she offered a 25% pay rise to public sector workers, which was significantly more than the rate of inflation at the time. So that kind of busts a lot of those myths about wage price spirals and all of that. But given this, you know, and given trying to expand our imagination of what the government could possibly do, what have other countries done to better address inflation? And could the UK learn from any of those strategies? So I think the right thing to do in a situation like this, where there is a problem, you know, the price of food has gone up globally, the price of oil has gone up globally, you know, on average, we are poorer uh, in some way. The question is, how do you manage that distribution of of who is going to feel the squeeze uh, in their weekly purchasing power? Uh, And the government choices in this country, by and large, have led to redistribution from poor to rich. And they could quite easily have chosen the opposite. They could have chosen to implement higher windfall taxes, to increase taxes on capital incomes, higher incomes, and at the same time provide more income support for those at the bottom um, of the income distribution uh, in the in the form of subsidies. It could even be price caps, expanding caps like the fuel price cap. So those are fiscal measures that the government actually has in its power to do. Of course, the government isn't tasked with, and and under the current legal framework, isn't tasked with dealing with inflation. That's open to question whether it should be. So it shouldn't be claiming credit for inflation coming down or saying that it's targeting inflation because that's the so-called independent Bank of England's um, job. It does have these fiscal tools. And the right way to use those tools is to manage the distribution to make sure that you protect people from the price rises. It's all well and good saying price rises are bad, we're going to fight them. But actually, what you care about is the purchasing power of average people, they have the tools to protect those people and they haven't used them. And other countries have used them more aggressively. In France, they have the uh, the trimester anti-inflation, it's called. Uh, other countries have enforced stricter price caps. Uh, Belgium has a wage indexing system. Um, all the European countries now, Spain, France, Germany, are seeing headline inflation lower than ours. I actually think we've got to be a bit careful before we start joining the dots and saying, you know, this policy brought inflation down quicker here or protected people more there. Um, I think when the dust settles, we can kind of look back and figure out what caused what. But the big picture to me is that the government could be protecting those who need protecting and is choosing not to. So unemployment is up to, is up as well. It's increased by 0.3% to 4.2% overall. Does this mean that a recession is is likely? I mean, I think we're sort of teetering on zero growth, and we have been for a while, and we're probably going to be doing the same thing, um, you know, for the next six months to a year. Beyond that, I've got no real crystal ball. The technical definition of a recession is two quarters of negative GDP growth. We could easily 
get that. We could also avoid it by kind of scraping along at you know single single digit or even you know less than single digit GDP growth. What is clear is that the economy is in a is in a bad way. Um, unemployment is actually historically quite low. Um, one of the interesting things during the austerity period is that unemployment did fall. But I think if you look beneath the surface of those figures, what you really saw was a big expansion of low quality, uh, precarious work. You saw a lot of people who arguably shouldn't have been expanding their hours of work, for example, um, women with dependent children, you know, clearly taking on extra hours of work just to make ends meet. So we've got to be a bit careful, I think, with the employment headline figures. They're often pointed to, you know, by sort of supporters of the austerity and subsequent economic uh, policies as evidence that it worked. But I really don't think that's the case. I think we've seen a big expansion of of not very good work, low paid work. There's a lot of clustering around the, the minimum wage, zero hours contracts and so on. Um, so the, the employment situation isn't great. Yeah, I mean, if the Tories love anything, it's a reductive headline statistic, right? Like they just, it's what they've sort of relied on this whole time. Um, I also wanted to actually bring your attention to this headline. Um, I believe this one's from The Telegraph. Uh, yes. So here we can see that even though interest rates are likely to rise, the big mortgage lenders have cut their fixed term mortgage rates, which is kind of the opposite of what you'd expect. Why is that? I think probably what's happening is that the banks are looking ahead a bit and realize that the peak, and we're not quite there, but the peak is pretty close. I think the bank has maybe got one more rate rise. Of course, it depends what happens geopolitically, globally. We've, got, we've seen this suspension of the grain deal between Russia and Ukraine that is going to push grain prices back up again. Global warming, we're seeing you know increasing effects. So I think we do need to think of what we've, we're currently going through as a kind of dry run um, for sustained period, I think, as a result of global warming of these kind of supply shocks. But if the current one, you know, does fade out as expected, we're probably at the peak um, of interest rates for now. And the banks just kind of price things in, you know, six months to a year ahead. If they know the rates are coming down, they can start to offer slightly lower rates now. Right. On to our next story on the theme of depressing. Return to the Home Office. <laughs> The Home Office imprisons asylum seekers on barges and forces them into overcrowded and disease-ridden camps. We know there's no limit to the misery it's prepared to heap on this vulnerable group. But now they're coming for recognised refugees too. The Home Office is prepared to make thousands of refugees and trafficking victims homeless by reducing the notice they are given if evicted from government accommodation. The article says this. Until last month, newly recognised refugees and survivors of trafficking had 28 days to find alternative accommodation after receiving a notice to quit before being evicted from home office accommodation they had lived in while officials were processing their claims. But this has now been reduced to a minimum of seven days. Charities had called on the government to extend the notice period for eviction to 56 days, arguing that 28 days did not give people long enough to find new accommodation, get a job or access benefits. Local authorities have an obligation to provide emergency accommodation to refugees with children, but adults without children may not qualify for support, leaving them at risk of homelessness. And even if you do have children, the impact of being given just seven days to leave your home can be immense. The Guardian spoke to one mother, a survivor of trafficking, who received an eviction notice after being granted leave to remain, and she told them this. I was shocked. The Home Office only gave us seven days to find a new place to live. My hands are still shaking. We started packing, but we don't know where we are going. We know council housing waiting lists are very long. Things were stable and now they are messed up. I haven't been able to close my eyes and sleep since I got the eviction notice. My daughter has been crying and asking if she will still be able to go to school. I received the eviction notice on Monday last week and we were evicted on Monday the 14th of August. I just had to leave most of our belongings behind. We had to go to the council as homeless and the council didn't tell us until 5pm on Monday that we were going to get any accommodation. We are in a hotel room in the same area as the home office accommodation, but if we get moved again, my daughter might not be able to go back to the same school in September and I might not be able to continue with the university course I am doing. The Home Office took six years to make a decision about my case and then they evicted me within a week. Having only seven days feels like just seconds. I've gone through a lot with what happened when I was trafficked and I'm very vulnerable. We need more time to sort everything out. When you look at that story, right, you look at the details of that story, that is essentially 
someone who had been trafficked. So she has a lot of emotional trauma, psychological trauma to pick the pieces up of. She then finally manages to get her leave to remain um, after her case took so long to be processed. And bear in mind, you can't work while your process is being, while your case is being processed. And you're given a very measly amount by the government. So it's not like she had all this time to save money and to kind of build up a you know material security for herself. And then out of nowhere, she finds that she's going to lose the place where she has tried to build a life. And there's just something that about that, and this is really how racism works, because what you find is that someone is being, every time they try to pick themselves back up, you know, whether it's to get a university education or, you know, put their child in a school to build roots, to do the things that a person needs to do in order to fulfill their potential and live a dignified life, you're knocked back down by the system. And then when when you can't get yourself back up, when you have that final knock, then the government turns around and says, oh, look, these people, they can't govern themselves or they just need to rely on government services. Well, you've dispossessed them of everything and you've made it impossible for them to build roots, to build the community and to do the thing that they want to do, which is to just get back to and live a regular life after having to do something that I hope I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, which is to uproot yourself, to leave your home um, either by force or because you you feel that your home is not going to provide you with, with a livable condition anymore and go somewhere that you don't have a community or where you don't know the system. And so honestly, I believe that this era of our country is really going to go down in history as history is going to look back at this era essentially with disgust at the way that we have treated people in these conditions. And remember stories like this when the government tries to claim that their stop the boats policy is in any way about empathy for trafficking victims. You can't have it both ways. You can't say we have to implement these dysfunctional and cruel policies in order to protect trafficking victims and then evict trafficking victims within seven days of giving them leave to remain. You can't have it both ways. I think we know that this policy has nothing to do with trying to protect victims of trafficking or protect people who come in small boats. And it's everything to do with public cruelty against a stigmatized group of people. Anyway, rant over. Um, Let's go back and see what the Home Office said in response to The Guardian. Our policy has not changed and asylum seeker remains eligible for asylum support for a prescribed period from the day they are notified of the decision of their claim. This is clearly communicated to the individual in writing. We encourage individuals to make their onward plans as soon as possible after receiving their decision, whether that is leaving the UK following refusal or taking steps to integrate in the UK following a grant. Again, she was taking steps to integrate. She was getting a university degree. You know, she had a kid in school. You took that away from her. You made it impossible for her to do that. And then you blamed her or made it seem like it was her fault. Obviously, they're not responding to that particular case, but they are responding in abstract to cases like that. Ash, I don't even have words. I don't even have words. Like it, the government, the charity said to them, we need longer time. You know, 28 days is not enough. We need 56 days. And the government responded with, actually, we're going to cut it down to seven days. What does that tell us about where this government is trying to go with these policies? Well, what this tells us about the government is that they are a bunch of lying, cruel hypocrites, because it's recognized in housing law that 28 days isn't a long enough period to get your life in order when you're served with an eviction notice. A Section 21 eviction notice, which is the kind of eviction notice a landlord might issue you if they want to sell the property or move someone else in or whatever reason, that requires a minimum notice period of two months. So why would a refugee, who I think that we can all agree probably faces more obstacles and barriers in life than your average tenant, why would a refugee be entitled to half of that when it comes to being evicted by the Home Office. There's no logical reason for it. There's no efficiency reason for it when you think about all of the knock-on problems that deliberately making vulnerable people homeless cause. It's just cruelty. It's just cruelty. It's creating this hyper-vulnerable, hyper-exploitable group of people in this country and saying, well, aren't we nice for even letting you set foot on these shores anyway? You're creating a two-tier system of housing law where you go, okay, 
this is what our citizens get in terms of protections from the law. But these people who, as you've pointed out, may well be victims of trafficking, who may be vulnerable to abuse, exploitation and indeed being trafficked again, well, we're going to leave them utterly unprotected by the law. That's what this series of policies do. And that's before you get to the point of uh, the 28-day period being cut to seven days in some cases. I mean, how many of you think that you could, within seven days, find a place to live, pack up your stuff, settle in, and do it without feeling traumatized by the experience? I don't think I could do that in 28 days, let alone seven. And the government know this, the Home Office know this. The reason why they're doing it, I think, is because over the decades in which we've had this kind of slash and burn neoliberalism, where more and more of the state's functions have been farmed out to the market, the market fucked it, living standards are in decline, public services are in a state of disintegration. The only powers that the state has retained for itself are borders and policing. And so that's why you've got this political project of crackdown after crackdown after crackdown. It's like the state's trying to prove that it can still do stuff. And it does that by picking on some of the most vulnerable people in society. And one last thing that I think it's always really important to point out is that many of the policies, whether it's forms of monitoring or surveillance or restrictions of rights um, that have first applied to migrants, asylum seekers and refugees in this country, they then kind of leach out and start impacting more and more sections of the population. So the kinds of monitoring that we saw in the new Labour era, firstly regarding asylum seekers, then got rolled out further to impact benefits claimants. You know, it's like trickle-down economics, that's a load of bullshit, but trickle-down precarity that's real. And it very often starts with people who are classed as non-citizens because it's got the political cover granted by tabloid hate campaigns against these individuals, but it's never going to stop there. On to our next story. In 2003, Andrew Malkinson was convicted of rape and sentenced to life in prison. But there was a problem with that decision. Malkinson was innocent. And last month, his conviction was finally overturned. The Crown Prosecution Service finally accepted that DNA obtained from the victim's clothing two decades earlier pointed to another man being responsible for the crime. Speaking outside the Court of Appeal after his conviction was quashed, Malkinson said this. Today we told this court I was innocent and finally they listened. But I have been innocent all along. For each of those 20 years that came before today, Nothing any police officer, court or commission said about me since 2003 changed that reality. At every parole hearing, I sat before a panel who shook their heads at me, considering me to be dangerous. And all that time, the real perpetrator, the real dangerous person was free. More recently, I was allowed to leave prison, but with my name on the sex offenders register and under tight supervision by police and probation, I was not free. And now I have finally been exonerated. I am left outside this court without an apology, without an explanation, jobless, homeless, expected to simply slip back into the world with no acknowledgement of the gaping black hole that they opened up in my life. A black hole that looms so large behind me, even here today, that I fear it will swallow me up. As he said that, nobody believed him. But a new development suggests that some should have suspected that he was innocent. It's emerged that the police and the Crown Prosecution Service knew from as early as 2007 that male DNA on the victim's clothing was found, and it was not Malkinson's. The crime that Malkinson was convicted of was particularly brutal. And just a little warning here, the details I'm about to describe of sexual violence are graphic. So a young woman endured a violent and life-changing sexual assault by a stranger in the middle of the night in Salford. Her assailant strangled her, beat her and bit her viciously. 
And yet, despite no DNA linking Malkinson to the scene, he was convicted on the basis of witness testimony. Four years later, in 2007, forensic scientists retested the clothing of the victim and discovered DNA that wasn't Malkinson's. The DNA came from a site on the clothing where the victim had been brutally bitten. Between 2007 and 2009, that DNA was also run through the National DNA Database, but turned up no matches, further confirming that it wasn't Malkinson's. At the time, a senior CPS lawyer wrote this in his notes. If it is assumed that the saliva came from the offender, then it does not derive from Malkinson. This is surprising because the area of the clothing that the saliva was recovered from was crime-specific. So despite being so surprising police and prosecutors failed to notify the Criminal Case Review Commission, or the CCRC. That's the body that investigates potential miscarriages of justice. The CPS is supposed to alert the commission whenever evidence emerges that might render a conviction unsafe. In 2012, the CCRC did get involved after Malkinson had written to them asking them to conduct further DNA testing. According to Malkinson's case files, the commission wasn't interested. The BBC reports this. The agency's case log shows its investigators then concluded there was nothing to be gained by having any of the DNA tested. The file disclosed to Mr. Malkinson notes, Would testing be a good use of public funds? I do not think on the basis of the material available that it would be a reasonable course of action. A CCRC investigator later wrote that there was no DNA material to speak of and further testing would be extremely costly. The file goes on to question whether the location where the new DNA profile had been found was significant at all. There is no certainty that the Vestop DNA sample is crime-specific, wrote a CCRC investigator. How could it not be a good use of public funds to check the DNA found in a place where the victim was severely injured by her attacker's bite? Let's just remember, Malkinson was in jail for nearly two decades. In 2018, the CRCC considered Malkinson's case again. That was after it emerged that there had been flaws in witness evidence at his trial. Malkinson had been picked from a police lineup and charged, despite the fact that he did not match the victim's description. He also had no facial scratch, where the victim had scratched the perpetrator so hard her fingernail had broken, and a second witness had picked out a different person. But that still wasn't enough to make the commission run a second database search on the DNA or carry out its own testing in the meantime. Greater Manchester Police destroyed the victim's clothing. It was only because of the work of Charity Appeal that the 2007 DNA profile was dug up out of an archive and sent out for further testing. But in order to access the evidence, Appeal had to take extensive legal action against Greater Manchester Police. Speaking to the News Agents podcast, Malkinson explained how the system makes it so difficult to get justice. There's many things uh, could be fixed quite quite easily. Uh, I, I don't think the police should have control of um, evidence and disclosure. That should not be in their remit. They should concentrate on investigating cases, you know, doing police work. You know, uh, there should be a separate body that holds the evidence, so they can't because mine's not the only case where they've done this. They've deliberately destroyed pivotal evidence. I mean, the victim's clothing. I mean, that's obviously vital to preserve. But the I think they deliberately did that. I think they deliberately did that. So to 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 strengthen their to case expunge any you. possibility of me ever, because they knew by then when they started to weed it, as they said, they knew by then I was strenuously continuing to maintain my innocence after ten years and con and onwards. You know, I mean, that is shocking. It is very shocking, yeah, but I believe that's the truth. I, th I think it's not an accident. The work of appeal also led to a new suspect being identified who was arrested on the suspicion of the rape, and he has been released under investigation. Responding to these details, the CRCC told The Guardian this. We note the observations that have been made in relation to Mr. Malkinson's case and are considering the Court of Appeal judgment. As we have said before, it is plainly wrong that a man spent 17 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. The Crown Prosecution said this. It is clear that Mr. Malkinson was wrongly convicted of his crime and we share the deep regret that this happened. Evidence of a new DNA profile found on the victim's clothing in 2007 was not ignored. It was disclosed to the defence team representing Mr. Malkinson for their consideration. 
In addition, searches of the DNA database were conducted to identify any other possible suspects. At that time, there were no matches and therefore no further investigation could be carried out. Andrew Malkinson was released in 2020 after spending 17 years in prison, but only for good behaviour, not because the justice system admitted he was innocent and that they had made a mistake. As a result, he was released into, into society without much support, with a damning criminal record, and added to the sex offenders register. Ash, this man has been through a serious injustice. Can anything compensate for what he's been through? And why were the police so insistent on, despite the clear what looks like clear evidence to us at least, there was a problem here? So I'm going to take your question in two parts. First, can anything compensate Andrew Malkinson for the 17 years that he spent behind bars, the trauma involved in that, his name being besmirched as a violent rapist, having to go on the sex offenders register? No, there can be no compensation for that. There is no sum of money in the world that could possibly be a compensation for that experience. What there can be obviously, is institutional change of the kind that he's suggesting. Taking away the responsibility for evidence and disclosure from the police would mean that police would not have the opportunity to obstruct, withhold or destroy key evidence. That could mean that someone's name is cleared, their conviction overturned, or, you know, that they're simply, you know, no longer investigated as a line of inquiry. That's something which could happen. I'm not going to hold my breath, um, but that's something which could happen. As for, you know, why why did this happen? It's not going to come as a surprise to anyone that the police, the Crown Prosecution Service, is capable of institutional corruption. We saw that in the report into the Metropolitan Police regarding the investigation of the murder of Daniel Morgan. The Metropolitan Police were accused of institutional corruption, because of delays and the withholding of key evidence to an inquiry. Right now, we're seeing, I think, some really troubling developments in terms of the Greater Manchester Police and their handling of the arrest of Zaina Iqbal, a young woman who alleges that she was sexually assaulted while in police custody. Uh, she made a request for CCTV footage and a critical three hours of material is missing. They also sent it to her and her legal counsel, not in the correct order. Um, if you look at those two things, what I think they show is a pattern of evidence concealment in order to protect the police uh, from accusations of wrongdoing and to protect their reputation. Now, why would they do that in the case of Andrew Malkinson? Why would the police and the CPS do that in the case of Andrew Malkinson. I was having a think about it. And I think that two things are not only true at once, but are actually interrelated. And those two things are this gross miscarriage of, of justice in the case of Andrew Malkinson, and overall, a really bad conviction rate when it comes to reported rapes. So when you think about the very small proportion of rapes, which are uh, well, one, the rapes that happen, a much smaller proportion of those get reported to the police, a much smaller proportion of those uh, are taken forward in terms of uh, the prosecution and a smaller proportion of those end in a conviction. I was talking to a friend who is a, a criminal solicitor and what she said to me is that, well, the kinds of rape which are most likely to be taken forward as a prosecution are stranger rapes, right? They're the kinds that you imagine in the stereotype of a rape of a stranger leaping out in the dark and attacking a woman at random. The kinds of rape which tend not to be taken forward in prosecutions, or it happens a lot more rarely, are in the context of, you know, so-called date rape, intimate partner violence, cases where the um, uh, the accused is known to the accuser. And that's because they're a lot more difficult to prosecute. They're a lot more difficult to prosecute. It's a lot more difficult uh, to establish that what happened wasn't consensual or that the accused didn't have a reasonable belief that the activity was consensual. In the case of stranger rapes, that's a lot easier to prove. So I think what happened in the case of Andrew Malkinson is that 
The CPS and the police both thought that they had an absolute slam dunk. Here they had a really brutal case of stranger rape. They had somebody who wasn't super rich, who wasn't super powerful, to whom they could deny the presumption of innocence that every single person in this country is supposed to have. And they were confident that it would kind of be fine. And then when it starts to emerge that it wasn't fine, to deny this man the presumption of innocence, that the investigation was flawed, that the evidence was flawed, that they had, you know, potentially uh, at this point before the conviction was overturned, potentially imprisoned an innocent man. They didn't want to have to put themselves under that kind of scrutiny. They didn't want to lose their slam dunk because overall the investigation and prosecution of sexual assault is so bad. And I think that that's what led to what I believe are deeply corrupt practices by uh, the CPS, the CCRC, and in this case, Greater Manchester Police. It's because they knew that their reputation was so bad, they didn't want the consequences of having to face up to their mistake. It was better to waste 17 years of a man's life to tar him with the brush of sex offender and hope that at some point he'd give up on protesting his own innocence. There are two things here. There's firstly the fact that people who are in prison are forgotten by society. You know, it's not easy to mount a campaign or to gain public interest into a story of dignity or human rights for someone who's been put in prison because we've been told that if you're in prison you're an inherently bad and dangerous and harmful person there's nothing that's too nothing too bad can happen to you if that makes sense so I think there's kind of that that it becomes very difficult to create public pressure for people who have been incarcerated um, including in the cases of believing that there is a possibility that this person may have not actually committed the crime that they are in prison for. And there's also another kind of problem here. You know, the foundation of social democracy is this idea of policing by consent. It's this idea that you have this institution that has state-backed power to be violent towards people, to monitor them, to surveil them. Um, But it's all done by consent. And so there's this kind of weird contradiction whereby on the one hand, we're supposed to be consenting to this and it's supposed to be kind of a part of this democratic public. But on the other hand, their ability to justify the idea that they have state-backed power to violence relies on them having a reputation of never being wrong, of never making a mistake, of being essentially justifiably infallible. And so what you end up having from that is being completely unable to admit fault, being completely so difficult to hold accountable. The institution also has to show that it is doing a lot of what it's supposed to do. And obviously the number one justification that is made for the police having increasing powers, um, particularly over the past 10 years, their powers have increased, is to protect us from the bad guys. You know, and, and rapists and murderers are always the kind of big, big you know, sort of figures that are used in order to justify increasing policing powers. And so they want to seem like that's what they're doing, which then leads to this kind of overzealous conviction, where, as you said, they don't want to give up their slam dunk of having convicted a stranger rapist, which, as you've outlined, is the kind of big fear in the public imaginary that tends to justify overzealous and expanding police powers. So that question of how do you both have an institution that has to justify overreach of power and, you know, the ability to to invade people's privacy, to surveil people, to monitor people, to be violent towards people, um, you know, and it has to justify that. And yet also an institution that can be held accountable and can be seen as fallible. It's a natural escalation that you the institutions that would be set up to hold them accountable would end up becoming toothless. So this new evidence of failings at the Crown Prosecution Service over Malkinson's case has meant that questions are being asked about its boss at the time. Who was that, you ask? Of course, no other than Labour leader Keir Starmer. On Sky News, Deputy Leader of the Party, Angela Rayner, was asked about his involvement. 
it was known that there was DNA evidence quite early on, but it now appears that the police, the CPS and the Criminal Cases Review Commission um, didn't act on that DNA evidence, potentially because of the cost of having to carry out extra DNA checks. Are there questions for the Director of Public Prosecutions at the time to answer over this, do you think? Of course, that person would, would have been Keir Starmer. Well, first of all, I think it's absolutely appalling miscarriage of justice what's happened. I was shocked when we first had the reports around the fact that an innocent man went to jail for a very long time. But then when we hear that there was a potential for that evidence and that information to be there to release the individual and to catch the real perpetrator of the crime, and that was a failed system that didn't do that. There is serious questions to ask about why that information wasn't provided and, and that they didn't go after the real perpetrator, who of course was then free to carry on uh, doing these horrendous crimes and an innocent man was in jail for way too long and it's an appalling miscarriage of justice. So there is questions to be asked around what happened and why that happened and, and what's going to be done to ensure that there isn't other people in the system like that and that that won't happen again. Have you had that conversation with Keir Starmer? He was the Director of Public Prosecutions. Shouldn't those questions be being put to him? Well, I'm not sure whether Keir Starmer was involved in this particular case, but it, you know, as you said in your outline, there was, number, there was a number of organisations that were involved in, in this prosecution and in the subsequent appeal and what happened after that. And we need to get to the bottom of that and find out why this innocent man was kept in jail for as long as he was, when it's pretty clear from the reports that that didn't have to happen. On to our next and final story. Have a look at this clip. The legacy that my father has left, not only this country, but the world, it's so important that we sustain that. And that legacy can be sustained by ensuring that we, in turn, support community groups and other charities. There's no greater reward for us than ensuring that those charities and groups um, are allowed to shine. That was Hannah Ingram Moore, the daughter of Captain Tom Moore. He was the 100-year-old former serviceman who raised money for NHS charities during the COVID lockdown. The Captain Tom Foundation was set up in his name in 2020, and in 2021, after his death, Ingram Moore became its CEO on a salary of £85,000 a year. That video we showed you was a promotional clip for a 2021 award associated with the foundation, the Virgin Media O2 Captain Tom Foundation Connector Award. BAFTA's who? Oscar who? That's the award that we're all trying to get here. In exchange for judging these awards and appearing at ceremonies, Ingram Moore is reported to have been paid thousands of pounds. You might think, what a great way to make some money for the foundation she was in charge of. Except, of course, it wasn't, because it turns out Ingram Moore was banking the cash in her own private family company, rather than turning it over to the Captain Tom Foundation. The Charity Commission has been investigating conflicts of interest between the foundation and the family business after concerns over potential mismanagement and misconduct were aired. They told the BBC this. Our inquiry into the Captain Tom Foundation remains ongoing. Its scope includes examining whether the trustees have adequately managed conflicts of interest, including with private companies connected to the Ingram Moore family. A spokesperson for the Captain Tom Foundation told the BBC this. The Captain Tom Foundation is aware of the commercial arrangements made by Hannah Ingram Moore with Virgin Media O2 in respect of the Virgin Media Captain Tom Foundation Connector Awards. This matter is the subject of an ongoing internal investigation. The Charity Commission has been notified of the Foundation's review of this matter and the Foundation will share its findings once the investigation has concluded. The BBC also asked Hannah Ingram Moore for comment and this is how the BBC reported her response. Replying to a BBC email about this matter, Hannah Ingram Moore said via email, you are awful, it's a total lie. Six minutes later, she added, apologies, that reply was for a scammer who has been creating havoc. Okay, Hannah, whatever you say. Um, Ash, what do you make of Hannah Ingram Moore <laughs> entering her villain era? I think she should embrace it, get the whole um, Maleficent like, like thingies in her face and like, you know, get some thin eyebrows. I think she could work it. I picture her more like Two-Face from Batman. So she's like, fuck off. It's a lie. Blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, no, bad Hannah. There's a scammer. Oh, it's causing havoc. Um, I'm just loving this kind of like, you know, cartoonish split personality. Um, I mean, look, I find this whole story 
hilarious, right? It's hilarious because the thing was an obvious grift from the start, but the climate of kind of hysterical nationalism, which engulfed Captain Tom, meant that you couldn't state the obvious when it was happening. Otherwise, you'd have a million people jumping down your neck, calling you a terrorist-sympathizing Britain hater. Um, There was an early interview that Hannah Ingram Moore did where she outlined the fact that she and her husband had been in financial troubles, the business was failing, didn't know where money was going to come from, lockdown happens, and then that's when her father started walking, which is such a suspicious timeline of events when you think about it, Um, just sitting there right out in the open. But because Captain Tom appealed to this imagery of pulling together, blitz spirit, keep calm and carry on, someone who has a very personal living connection to World War II, all of those patriotic symbols were able to flimsily disguise what was going on underneath it. And so then suddenly here comes, you know, Captain Tom branded gin. Well, you can't say that that's a bad thing to do. Oh, here comes the holiday to the Bahamas during a pandemic on which he caught the COVID that killed him. Oh, no, you can't say anything because, you know, doesn't he deserve a holiday after everything he's done? Well, yeah, you know, he did deserve a holiday. Lifetime of service and charitable activity. He also probably deserved to live a lot longer rather than being killed by a disease because his daughter wanted a free Caribbean holiday. I really feel like the Captain Tom Moore moment, like, I was just like, I don't, with all of my cultural studies, you know, Bray, I was like, I can't figure out what is going, it made me want to dig up Stuart Hall and just be like, what's going on here? Like, like what's, like, just, I can make some sense of what's happening, but I, you know, he should rest in peace. God forbid he has to witness what we become. Um, I mean, I just think that they're all just jealous of her. You know, they just can't see a woman winning, a woman CEO winning. Speaking of women winning, God, that cue was amazing. Uh, We haven't got long left, so we're going to be quick. England are through to the Women's World Cup final. Ash, are you excited? I am, and that's just because um, I love team sports. This is one of the things I've discovered about myself. Um, I was like cheering uh, over a sport I'd never seen before. It's called POM, which is like kind of handball against a wall. And I was so into it. I just love team sports, and I'm very excited for the England team. Um, Yeah going to be great. Yeah, I am known during the Olympics to just like get involved in sports that I have no idea what's going on. And my favorite thing is in the like the um, winter Olympics when they do the snowboarding stuff, I just pick a random person and I just, and I, I like for the 10 seconds that they're snowboarding down something, I, I would die for them. And then I have immediate amnesia. I don't remember what's going on. And I have no idea what's going on when I'm watching it, but I love the I just love to scream. I love le- like legitimized spaces for yelling and screaming. Um, anyway, on that note, thank you, Ash, for joining me tonight. Um, and thanks everyone for watching uh, this evening. Come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6 p.m. For now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support. <laughs>